Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, I'm going to tell you guys about the infamous case of the escape from Alcatraz. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. On June 11, 1962, Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin, who were brothers, escaped from Alcatraz, which was a prison off the coast of San Francisco on an island. It's about 1.25 miles from San Francisco, and it was known as The Rock. Alcatraz opened up in 1934, and it was a prison that was supposed to be inescapable. Its reputation was that nobody could get out of it, and then even if they did, it was surrounded by all these cold waters with the currents and shark infested supposedly so it wasn't believed that any inmates could escape from Alcatraz which is starting our story off very ironically it's also kind of nice though to think about like sending some of like the worst criminals there and just leaving them there they can't escape in theory yeah some pretty infamous prisoners went there there was Al Capone and I came across one that was a well-known one, quote-unquote, named Bumpy Johnson, which, I don't know. I thought that was a fun one. I don't know that one. And George Machine Gun Kelly, which I didn't know that the artist or musician Machine Gun Kelly was named after a prisoner, or you know what I mean? I had no idea, so that was interesting. The prisoners part of this escape were, there was actually four of them, Frank Morris, and then John and Clarence Anglin, like I mentioned, but there was a fourth person named Alan West. All the men were in their early 30s, and the goal was obviously for them all to escape. However, the night of the escape, Alan West was not able to make it, and I'll get into that. I was going to say, when I've heard about this story in the past, and his name doesn't really come up, I've heard of the other ones, but I don't typically hear his name. You know, even in the documentaries I watch, they don't talk about Alan West that much, which is interesting to me because he was such a pivotal part of the escape. However, it's, I think, because there's so much surrounding the case, whether or not the men survived after the fact, so which he's not a part of that. But he was the one who gave a lot of information about the escape that we all know now. So Frank Morris was very intelligent. He had an IQ of 133. And they talk about it a lot. Anytime you look up this, they talk about how he was the mastermind and very smart. However, after researching it, I think they all did quite a bit. They were all very handy. John and Clarence Anglin were brothers and they were sent to Alcatraz specifically because they kept trying to escape and escaping from prisons before. Same as Frank Morris, he had escaped Louisiana State Penitentiary and they got caught a year later and was sent to Alcatraz as well. So like I said, prisoners come here and they're not supposed to be able to escape. And so much so that like John and Clarence England requested to have cells right by each other and they were granted that basically because they're like, well, what's going to happen? I just think that that's a really bad idea no matter what. I actually did see Alan, Frank, John, and Clarence all put in request to have cells by each other, and they were all granted. I don't know if Frank and Alan were right by them, but I know the two brothers were right beside each other. 
Frank Morris was in and out of jail since he was 13 years old. A lot of his offenses had to do with bank robberies. And this was the same for John and Clarence Anglin. They were specifically in prison for this offense for robbing, trying to rob a bank with a toy gun. Was that just so that they couldn't get the charge of having a real gun? They were just trying to scare them? I assume so. Or... Or were they like previous criminals and they didn't have access to guns? They had gotten in trouble before for stuff, but I don't know why they chose a toy gun and not a regular gun. Something else I came across I thought was interesting is Alcatraz was kind of known for having some of the most violent criminals in there. And I thought that was interesting that they have all these guys who aren't don't really have the violent offenses. Here's some of the things that the guys went through to make their plan work. They all got jobs in different parts of the prison to get the materials they needed. Alan was in maintenance, so he had access to a lot of parts of the prison. Specifically, right above their cells, there was like this platform that he was able to go up there at work, and he told them that there was dust falling onto the ground, so they let him put up tarps up there so you couldn't see up there. He wasn't supervised because they figured, what's he going to do? So he had this whole, it was, it ended up being their workroom, this whole area that he was up there working on and painting, quote unquote, that these guys had access to, to hold all the materials they had and make the rafts and life vests, which is something I'm going to get into, stuff they made as well. But I thought that was so interesting because what he did was one day he was smart enough to like push some dust on the ground. So when a guard went by and made a comment, he was like, yeah, there's dust coming down from the work up there. That's why we need to put up blankets and tarps so the dust doesn't come down. That's pretty smart on their part. Now, did you say how the four of them got to know each other and why they requested rooms next to each other? I don't know how they knew each other. The brothers obviously knew each other through that. I assume they just kind of met while in prison and were all, they maybe heard, maybe they're all talking about escaping because they had done it in the past. Maybe they had heard of each other. I'm not sure, but they found each other regardless. The boys made a raft out of raincoats that they had acquired from Alcatraz, over 50 raincoats. And I think that's wild. I don't know how they ended up with that many they had glue to put the raft together access to a sewing machine they were able to make a type of drill using a motor from a vacuum they collected hair because clarence was a barber so he would take some of the hair and they used it when they made plaster head molds that they were going to put in their beds the night of the escape so it looked like they were sleeping One of them even took up painting so that he had paint that he could use to paint the molds to make it look like skin color. So overall, they were very crafty and handy. It sounds like they put quite a bit of effort into this. And I'm assuming that if you want to escape a prison at all, you have to put in a lot of effort. What I think, too, is interesting is that they could get all these materials and keep them and work on them. In one of the documentaries I watched, an old prison guard was talking about how they had so much stuff there because they used the prison to produce a lot of materials. And he said, we didn't keep count or track of most of the materials. I also feel like because they were so set on the fact that nobody could escape from Alcatraz, they were just kind of naive in the sense where they had, they're like, we've got this. There's no way that anybody's going to be able to do anything yeah they were so confident in it that they kind of loosened the reins on the prisoners 
In each of their cells, they worked on drilling little holes into the back. There's a little air vent, couple inches by a couple inches, and they put little holes beside it so that it would loosen the wall. So they were able to break through it with all kinds of homemade materials that they would use. And they could break through because this prison actually had like a music hour where prisoners could play music. And so that would hide the sounds that they would be making while pushing through this wall. That's pretty smart of them. The night of the escape, when they went to actually push through and break through the rest of the wall, this is where Alan West couldn't get through. He wasn't able to make the hole big enough to get through it. So he didn't go with them. And that had to have sucked for him. (laughs) Like you go through this whole, like, I think they planned it for like a year or something. All this plan and work and effort and then all your buddies escaping you don't get to. That would kind of really suck. Once they broke through the hole in their cell, they were able to climb up a pipe to the top where that platform was I was telling you about them working on. And from there, they grabbed all their stuff. They made a 6 by 14 foot raft. They had their homemade paddles and life vest. From there, they were able to shimmy up more pipes to the roof where there was a air vent at the top that did not have concrete over it. So they were able to push it through. And they theorized that this happened at 1030 because there are reports of some loud sound happening at 1030. And they think it's the guys breaking through the roof. Did anybody go and check on this loud sound? You know, I'm assuming not because they didn't end up knowing that the guys were missing until the morning when they were trying to wake up all the prisoners. From there, they shimmy down another pipe from the roof and made their way to the water. And this is where the rafts come in. And this is where a lot of the theories, conspiracy theories, normal theories, whatever you want to call it comes in, because we don't necessarily know what happened from there. And a lot of people assume that they died because it seems like it would be too hard on a homemade raft to make it to any of the islands nearby. What Alan said was that they were going to paddle over to Angel Island, which was nearby, and then from there paddle again to land, which would be like San Francisco area, and make their way from there. There's a lot of theorizing. I watched a documentary where some scientists from Holland came in and made their own raft similar, as similar as they could to this to test it out and see if it would work. These guys specifically didn't make it, but they theorize that you could have. They're talking about, you know, you're trying to, you just escaped prison. There's a lot of adrenaline happening. You're fearing for your life because of the waters that they maybe could have. There was this current that goes through to the Golden Gate Bridge that if you got stuck in it at the wrong time, it would just pull you out to sea. But if you hit it the right time, it would push you right where you needed to go. They have actually had people who are like marathon swimmers and stuff, try to swim it and have been successful as well. So I think it's definitely possible. Yeah, I'm seeing that it's 100% possible, but would these guys who weren't professional swimmers have been able to do it or professional raft builders? That's the thing. I don't... But they also spent so much time prepping for this and like getting ready and they're like, you know, it's one of those things where you have one shot and you screw it up and that's it. So they probably put a lot of time and effort and thought into this and made sure that they could either swim it if they needed to or whatever. I really wonder if all three of them made it or if like one of them made it and like sacrificed the other two along the way somehow. (laughs) 
What do you mean sacrifice them? Like threw them out in the water and kept paddling? The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. As I said earlier, the guys weren't discovered missing until the next morning when a guard was waking up all the prisoners to get the day started. And they noticed that in one of the cells, the person was still sleeping. So he kind of reached in and pushed the head, which was that mold we talked about earlier that they put together. And it fell on the floor and busted. And that had to have scared the absolute shit out of him. Because <laughs> I would have been like, did I just push this guy's head off? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think it would have taken a second to, like, process what just happened. And I probably would have panicked at first, too, until I realized that it was just, like, clay mold all over the ground. The guys were gone. And officially to the public, the FBI said that they probably died or drowned. And their bodies just weren't found because of the currents and predation from animals and stuff like that however they still look into it and they have since had an investigator or detective or a group of them always working on this case trying to figure out some answers which brings me to ken and david widener who were the nephews of the england brothers and a couple years ago they approached a federal marshal who is retired now named art roderick with some information and evidence they said they had that their uncles were still alive and did make it. They talked a lot about how growing up their family was, they used the word harassed while their phones were bugged. They were tracing their phone calls, trying to figure out if, you know, the brothers escaped and had any contact with them. And so they mentioned a lot of distrust with the FBI and the government. And for the longest time, they didn't want to bring forth what they had in it. They said this time, like, this is the right time now. I feel like that's one of those situations where the actions of their family members and their family members were criminals, but it kind of made these family members feel like criminals if everything that they're doing is being watched and tracked. Absolutely. And I think they felt like that. They were a little frustrated with it. And, you know, they said, yeah, our uncle's did dumb stuff, but they weren't like violent bad guys. And I think if they did have this proof, you know, and the family thought they were alive, I'm not surprised they didn't come forward because if they come forward, then they get caught. And I'm assuming they didn't want the England brothers to get found and put back in prison, which is a whole messy situation. Yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm processing. I don't even know what to like think about that. What the nephew showed Art Roderick, who is the federal marshal, like I said, first were some Christmas cards that supposedly came from John and Clarence England, and they were signed. And what they did was show their signature and compare it to other handwriting samples that they had from John and Clarence, which they said looked similar, but there was no way to trace back the Christmas cards and find a good, like a date on them or where they came from. There's no way to prove that those came from John and Clarence. Then they pull out a picture. And this picture was said to be taken in 1975. And it's a photo of 
John, and Clarence on their farm in Brazil, is what the nephews say. Interesting. They got it from a family friend named Fred Breezy, who grew up in Ruskin, Florida with the England family. So they all grew up together and spent a lot of time together. And apparently he came to the family with the information that the brothers, Clarence and John, were alive and well and living in Brazil on a farm. And he brought them the photo to prove that kind of as a way to ease the family, say, don't worry about them. It's okay. Fred had been involved in a drug cartel bringing drugs up to America from Central and South America. So he had access to the area, to planes and boats. He ended up getting arrested later on for this. His story is he was in Brazil. It was near Rio de Janeiro. And he's at a bar and this guy walks by and he looks and he's like, he looks familiar. And then he goes, John. And it was John England after the escape. And he just happened to run into him at a bar in Brazil. And then it went from there the where how he found out that they lived on the farm and stuff. Which I think is kind of, it's that sounds fishy to me. I think it sounds a little fishy. I agree. What I was gathering from the documentary and kind of what I think is that he was involved in the escape more, but he's trying not to implicate himself. Yeah, I'm wondering if he, that was kind of what I, my first thought was when you said that like he had ties to there and everything. I thought that maybe he smuggled them into Brazil, basically, and helped them get there. The nephews actually recorded the conversation they had with Fred Breezy and played some of it for the federal marshal. And in it, Fred talks about how he knows how the boys escaped. He talked about when they were kids, they lived right by a river and they would tie some rope around like a post and hold on to the other end and a boat would come by and pick it up basically with the bottom and drag them and they would like ride the water like that. And in it, he's saying that's what they did, which is interesting because 120 feet of electrical cords that were typically stored near the boat dock at Alcatraz were missing. And interestingly enough, the last ferry or boat left Alcatraz at 12.10 a.m. that night. So it would have been around the time of the escape. And that was to take workers from the prison back to the mainland. So in this theory, they use those cords to basically hitch a ride on this boat. That would be genius. And they'd probably, with all the planning and everything that they put into this, they probably would have known that the boat would leave around that time. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's actually a San Francisco cop named Robert Chechi. And that night he was smoking a cigarette after a shift. And he said that he saw a boat kind of out in the water near Alcatraz just sitting there. And it looked like a really nice one. There was no fishing lines or anything. And it just sat there for a while and then took off. And so they kind of theorized, like, what if this was someone helping the guys escape? Because they could have caught on to the ferry from Alcatraz and then just had to go little ways over there to get on this boat or the boat picked him up. That one, I think, I mean, it makes sense. I just confused where the raft comes into play. I I don't know. Maybe that was their backup plan in case they missed the ferry or maybe that was their original plan. And then they were like, oh, wait, this ferry, that would be a smarter idea. Or maybe the ferry has no involvement and all they did was take a raft. I know. It's 
there's so many like different options of things that could have happened. I just think if this is true, I think the Fred Breezy had a big part in it. Like maybe he was the guy on that boat that was sitting there. Mm-hmm, maybe. Or it was his boat. He sent someone out to do it. Or I don't know. You know, if you're in a like tied into like a smuggling ring, there's obviously a lot of characters and people involved with that. They also took this photo that was supposedly of John and Clarence and compared it to old photos of them or their mugshot photos. And a couple forensic facial imaging experts agreed that it was likely them. There were enough characteristics that matched. One of them in one of the documentaries told the lead on the case, don't stop now, keep going, which we can post, well, obviously post photos for you guys to look at the photo and then some old ones of them. I'll show Erica right now. So based on the photos that you just showed me, I could see the resemblance between the photo of them in Brazil and what they looked like when they were arrested originally. I think it definitely looks similar and it's kind of hard to tell because they've got the beards and sunglasses on in the photo that's supposedly taken in Brazil, but it was cool to watch on the documentaries them go to the specific features and talk about them. I just looked at the head shape. I was trying to look at the ears on the one guy. One thing that I noticed is John had some bigger ears is kind of how I saw them. They like stuck out a little bit more than some ears do. And I was trying to look at the guy that's in the photo from Brazil to see it, but his hair's so long that I Mm -hmm. couldn't tell that. But the face shape just looked so similar and like the size of their foreheads matched up really well to each of the photos the before and after yeah definitely like their foreheads especially on john he's got this like prominent brow like almost like an indent and they point that out in the documentaries that it matches the photo because you can see it in the photo as well yeah um they had a whole list of stuff that matched so i mean and obviously the hair and on the like head and all the facial hair and stuff that they've gotten would make sense that they would do that to try to cover them up so they look a little bit different. We've Abby and I've had this talk before that facial hair makes people look different. It 100% does. An investigative journalist named Christoph Putzel, who has a show called Mission Declassified, in 2019, I believe, he did an investigation on this case. And he tracked down the same information, basically, that I've told you, but some new stuff came in. So... He talked to the nephews, he talked to the detective working the case, and the federal marshal. That's something I found with a lot of the documentaries I watched. All the same characters were coming into play here. But he noted that in 1955, a blue Chevrolet was reported stolen in Marin County, which is the mainland in San Francisco. So it would be the area that the boys could have escaped to. And... Then at 11.30 a.m., the day after the escape, or the morning of the escape, however you want to phrase that since it goes overnight, a anonymous person said that they were forced off the road by three men in a blue 1955 Chevrolet vehicle that fit the description. He then tracks different sightings of either the men or the same car in Oklahoma, Indiana, Ohio, and South Carolina. And in South Carolina, the report was that three men fitting their descriptions were seen trying to hide out in the woods. Interesting. Which they thought was interesting, too, because they talk about how people who flee or, like, fugitives will go back to their roots, go somewhere they know. And 
the England brothers grew up in Florida. They know that area. Another thing he does is he looks at the photo of the England brothers in Brazil and notes that there's a two-lane highway behind it and then there's they're standing by these massive anthills. So he goes down to Tabate, Brazil, which I'm not sure how he landed on that specific spot. But apparently it's common for fugitives to flee to Brazil because they have lenient extradition laws and a lot of landscape and backcountry that you can kind of disappear into. And he talks to a curator of archives in the area and people who know the farms in the area and finds a farm right off the highway I guess at the time that the photo would have been taken, there was only one two-lane paved highway in this area. So they knew exactly which one it was, and they found a farm right off of it that was known around as the Farm of the Americans. And so they go to this farm to talk to the people who live there now, like the property managers, and they said that it was common for people to rent farms. And they said that two American men rented that farm back in the same time period in the 70s. Huh. And he went hiking around and found like an area that looks like it could match the photo almost with the highway in the back and like a similar tree line. So, okay. My, I do have a question though. Maybe we're going to get into this at some point. But that would explain John and Clarence. But have is there anything about where where Frank went? I could never find anything. The only thing that keeps like where he's part of the narrative is if it was the guys fleeing in all those states I mentioned just a little bit ago. We only know about the England brothers. I assume what happened is if they did make it, they split off. And Frank went and did his own thing, and the two brothers went and did a different thing. Well, also, somebody had to be taking that photo of the England brothers. It was breezy. Oh, okay. I guess that would make sense, though. Like, hey, we're cool. We're pals. We escaped together. We probably shouldn't stay together for too long because three of us is going to be more suspicious than just Mm -hmm. two or like me on my own. You know, and who knows how close they actually were besides just the plan. I kind of feel like it was more of a, hey, I'm going to use you so that I can escape from prison, but like look out for myself kind of thing. So I don't I feel like there probably wasn't that much of a relationship there or like a reason to stay in each other's lives other than the brothers, obviously. What do you think happened? Do you think they made it? I I mean, I think they do. I, I do have a hard time a lot. Of, and for those of you that listen to the podcast frequently or all the episodes know that I'm always the one out here that says people don't just disappear. So, but I think that maybe because this was in 1962 that they escaped. I think they probably could have gotten away with escaping back then without being seen. And they had a head start because the prison guards and everybody at the prison were so dead set on the fact that nobody could escape. So they didn't even really pay attention to things like that, I guess. But from everything you told me, it's definitely plausible. They were only a mile and a a little over a mile, like a mile and not even a half, right? Mm hmm away from land and if they needed to take a break there were all these islands in between the prison and uh, san francisco so there was opportunity for them to stop and take their breaks if they needed it or i mean while it was shark infested waters if it if it was i want to say too sharks aren't what we see in the movies i know i think it's so funny that they always say shark infested waters like sharks aren't just like eating any human that pops in the water Yeah, they're not like oh human let's go eat right now i mean logistically there's minimal shark attacks every year and well shark deaths every year i guess the tax might be more but it's just 
I think is definitely plausible, even if there were sharks in the water. I, I don't think every shark is out there to attack. There's lots of sharks out there that don't attack. I mean... <laughs> we're getting off on a tangent here. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, just because there were sharks there doesn't mean a shark would have ate them as soon as they were in the water. So I think that they definitely could have made it. I mean, yeah. they may have even petted a shark on the way. And I don't... For me, I don't really know with Frank what happened there because he's not in the narrative later on. But I 100% believe... Well, let's go 95% believe that those brothers were down in Brazil in that photo. And I think Breezy is more involved than he's leading on. I agree that Breezy's, I think, more involved than what he's leading on. Also, it was either the brothers or they had doppelgangers that looked just like Mm -hmm. them. Because that was definitely a a lot of similarities that they had between the two. Well, either way, the case is open and the U.S. Marshal's office is still investigating it and it will remain open until they either find them or the three escapees turn 100. They, well, on their 100th birthday, they will look for them through 99 years of age. And at that point, they just assume either they're dead or it's just a lost cause. And I do recommend watching some of the documentaries that I've talked about. I will obviously have those titles in our description for you guys to check out thanks for listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found you can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.